We're going to eventually turn to 1 Samuel 16, and uh, we're going to uh, start our series on the life of David. And um, But one of the things that we uh, talk about in the Bible college when we studied 1 Samuel, and I want to talk about here, is um, we don't just want to know the in-the-weeds story about David. We do want to know that, but we want to know how David's life and uh, why is David's life included in the Bible. What, what piece does... David and, and his story uh, play in the overarching theme of redemption of the Bible. So I don't think that you could know the life of David unless you know sort of the where it fits, one. And number two, I'm not sure you could know the life of David unless you'd know the life of Saul. <laughs> In fact, I think uh, from a literature standpoint, and certainly the uh, uh, Old Testament and New Testament writers uh, knew literature, and uh, God used it by his Holy Spirit to uh, make points in the Bible. And I think this is a big point, is that Saul was a real king, and David was a real king, but they're put there to compare and contrast. So if you want to know what, why David is so... Uh, thought or uh, thought of as a man after God's own heart, where you then you look at the preceding king, Saul, and see why he wasn't. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little introduction tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about the overarching place that David fits into the Bible. And um, it, it's like uh, remembering, and I, I say it all the time, but it's the way I think of it. Uh, if you want to listen to the symphony, you just don't listen to the flutes. You do listen to the flutes, and you know the flute part, and you do listen to percussion, and you know the percussion part, and you do listen to the violin, and you know the violin, and et cetera, et cetera. But when they all come together, that's where the beauty happens. And I want us to know that uh, from a big picture point of view. So real quick, the Old Testament, it begins with the creation story, 1 through 11, of... Um, uh, uh, of um, uh, Genesis, and then it turns into this time of the patriarchs. That's the rest of Genesis is the time of the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we're learning about God's sovereignty and choice. And he picks this family in line because a Messiah is going to come. He does it all because of the fall in the garden. And you know the story. Joseph, the last patriarch, I guess, um, Moses too, but uh, Joseph's whole family goes down into Egypt at the end uh, of the, the time of the patriarchs. And that's where we learn about Moses and Aaron and the Red Sea and Mount Sinai as we have an exodus out of Egypt. And at Mount Sinai, we know God gives Israel the law, the commandments, etc. But then I think we as, a, as Christendom, I, I think we as Christians sort of get a little lost after that. And so I want us to study it together and sort of um, uh, not get lost. What happens after the giving of the law is that there is this conquering and this settlement of the land of Canaan or the promised land. And that's where we see Joshua who goes in because Moses couldn't go in, and that's a whole story in itself. But then after that, and this is important, there are the judges, all those different judges, and they're sort of the people who God raises up 
in the time of uh, living in Canaan in the promised land, who when important spiritual or political or historical events happen, the judges sort of help settle the matter. And uh, uh, that happens after Joshua. And I want you to see something. Just practically, do me a favor and uh, go to the book of Judges, the last chapter. Okay? Go to the book of Judges, the last chapter. You're sailing along. You're learning all about the judges, um, uh, all about the families. You're sailing along. And all of a sudden, you get to this amazing story in this amazing book called Ruth. Don't Who here loves Ruth? Yeah, and it's only one of two books named after ladies in the Bible, the other being Esther, and it's a very short book, tells a love story that happens during the time of the judges. We know that. But what I just want you to see is I want you to turn to the last word of the book of Ruth. David. What did I say? Okay. <laughs> well, correct it on the tape, whatever I said. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is when we get to the end of Judges, oh, I get what you're, yeah, right. When we get to the end of Judges, we get to a book right after Judges called Ruth. And then I want us to fast forward through the book of Ruth. And I want you to look at the last word of Ruth. It's called David, or it says David. Because David is this great king, and uh, uh, there's this, there's people, you, you might know them, <laughs> Boaz and Ruth. And they begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse is who we're going to learn about tonight, the dad of David and seven other sons. And the reason I think that's important is is because David is going to be the central figure. But remember now, when we turn to the next book, 1 Samuel, we have a lot of characters. All right, everybody stay with me now. We have a lot of characters that we open up the book of Samuel to, and uh, here they are, Eli and his sons, Eli the priest and his sons. And they sort of, not sort of, but Eli raises Samuel. Remember that? And Samuel uh, is uh, from Hannah, and Samuel grows to be the great priest of the people of Israel and be, is also a prophet, um, and some even include him as the last judge. But we start to uh, see his life uh, here in the first several chapters of the book of Samuel. And then something happens. Well, Samuel gets old. That's what happens. Because in the, you think I'm kidding, except for in verse 5 of chapter 8, something happens at the beginning here that you need to know. The people of Israel want a king. Now, God had always intended to establish a king, but God's pick was David, and it was coming in due time. But because of several things, we see it right here, look, it says, you are old, <laughs> verse 4, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Samuel's sons didn't walk in the ways, so he, they couldn't pass down the mantle of 
spiritual things from Samuel to his sons. So make us a king to judge us. Remember, there is going to be a king, but it's supposed to be God's king. And they say this, it's not necessarily that they call for a king, but here's what gets them sort of in trouble. It says, make us a king to judge us like, uh uh-oh, all other nations. See, that's the problem. God called Israel to be separate and apart and look different and to be ruled and reigned by God and who he establishes. But just like Abraham did uh, when he didn't wait on the promise, and he had a child with Hagar, and that was Ishmael. They took matters into their own hands. Here, sort of, Israel demands a king. And it's, this king is going to be the people's choice. In fact, the Bible tells us in chapter 9 that there was nobody more handsome than Saul, the one who's going to be king. And not only that, he was very tall and very thought of, and uh, look this, uh, a, his family it was a mighty family, verse two, uh, 1 says, of power. And he was handsome, as I mentioned. Did I mention that? I'm doing that on purpose. Because here's why. I mean, the world's choice is always the people who look good. All you have to do is turn on the Oscars whenever they come on. You'll see. It's all the classy, beautiful people. All you have to do is turn on Instagram or Facebook or HGTV, and it's all the beautiful uh, uh, image uh, conscious things that gain favor in the world, and that was, has never been um, uh, out of style. I mean, here we are all the way back in First Samuel, and that's how they picked. In fact, Samuel himself uh, seems uh, to get uh, fall into that trap, and we're going to see that in a minute. Well, let's do this. Let's turn over to 1 Samuel and uh, 16. Let's turn over there. And I just want you to know, you, just approximately, approximately, everybody, if you send me an email and says it was a different date than this, I'll say, okay, I believe you. I'm just giving you an approximation. From approximately 1100 BC to 1050 BC, is when the period of 1 Samuel takes place. Now, why am I telling you that? Because I'm trying to set some landmarks for you. Because what year, let's see, if you guys get this, wow, this will be amazing. What year was the northern kingdom taken out by Assyria? Look at that, 722 BC. And what year was the, wait a minute, don't answer yet. I'm going to trick you. Was the southern kingdom first dipped into by Babylon, first. I'd say around 605 B.C., and they did it in three waves, and the final wave was what year? Say it. 586 B.C. That's a good job. And I'm just trying to establish where we are in the history of Israel. That's where we are. We're in that area uh, era of 1100 to 1050 B.C. Now watch this. We get to David. You know what's funny about David? Never in the time that the Bible is being written, um, excuse me, let me say it this way. Once we start the life of David all the way to the end of David, it never says in there that David is a man after God's own heart. You get that? 
from chapter 16 to the end of his life. Where it says it is, is after Saul gets in trouble for making an unlawful sacrifice. Look in uh, chapter 13 real quick, verse 14. Look at this, what God or uh, what Samuel through God says to Saul. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What Saul did right there was they were going to a, a battle. They get to the battle, and Samuel is coming, the priest of Israel. Everybody with me? They go to a battle in chapter 13. They get to the spot. They're waiting for Samuel to come to do what? To make the sacrifice before God, before they go into the battle. And uh, uh, Saul's like, um, you know, I I don't think I can wait that long. So Saul makes the sacrifice. Well, the king was not supposed to make the sacrifice, folks. That was the job of the priest. And uh, Samuel confronts him with it. And this is, you should read through this chapter. It's fascinating. Uh, I'm going to make points here about it here in a minute. But what's fascinating about it is uh, Saul goes like this. Oh, you're right. Oh, oh, Father, Lord, please forgive me. Okay, let's go and let's start again. And that's how, that was what his repentance was. That was what his repentance was. What's interesting about Saul as the man's choice is that's one of the big differences between Saul and David. David certainly wasn't perfect. We know that. But David kept short accounts with God. He kept real repentance at the forefront of his life. And he would write those things down in the Psalms. Saul, he was a person who hid things. And let me just show you how it all started unbelievable. In chapter 9 again, we've already talked about that. This is the chapter where Saul is chosen to be king, and they're getting ready to uh, coronate him or anoint him or however. They're having a big ceremony uh, uh, with David and, uh, or excuse me, with uh, Saul, and he's chosen to be king. He's now uh, going to be anointed and I can't find it in here, but it is in here. <laughs> Dave, oh, here it is. We get over to chapter 10, and look at this. And when Samuel, verse 20, chapter 10, had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, da-da-da-da, Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, look at this. This is how it all started for Saul. This was the foreshadowing, the writing on the wall. Watch this. He couldn't be found. He was hiding. He's getting ready to be anointed as the king. And this is how it all starts out. He hides. He knows. There's something down deep inside where he knows. And so he's hiding, and they have to prompt him to come out. And the whole lesson there is, if you want to know a great lesson from the life of David, you look at it through Saul and how David did it, you don't hide your sin. You live a transparent life with the Lord. If you think you're hiding something from the Lord, that's really silly. Just let me tell you. 
And then the Bible tells us, right, in the New Testament, confess our sins one to another. You know, don't have to have TMI here, but we're to confess our sins. That's a healthy thing. But the problem is, as many of us are like Saul, Lord, oh, forgive me. Hey, let's keep going. I just saw something the other day. Uh, uh, being sorry is crying about it. Being repentance means you change. Whoa, that's powerful. Why? Because you lay it out all on the table. You get on your knees before the Lord and you recognize that you or me, we have sinned against you, Lord. We aren't sad because we got caught. We're sorrowful because it, we sinned against you. And now, Lord, thank you for forgiving us and we move forward in change. Saul didn't do that. And that's one of the big differences. If you're writing them down, that's the big first biggie, is that Saul was always a hider, a justifier, an excuser. David, on the other hand, felt sorrow and knew that he'd sinned against the Lord and moved on, uh, and the trajectory of his life was repentance. Okay, so now we get to 1 Samuel 16 and watch this. 1 Samuel 16, now as David is going to be anointed as king. And here's what the verse says. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Why? What, what has happened? Saul has been rejected as king. And, uh, uh, and you know, Samuel's sad about it and wondering if he failed or who failed or why did he fail? And he's been mourning for Saul. And I want you to see something here that's really pretty fascinating. Fill your horn with oil and go. (laughs) I'm sending you to Jesse. There it is. That's from the book of Ruth. There's the tie. I'm sending you to Jesse. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. You check that out back there in Ruth 4, 17 and 20. 22, Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Fill your horn and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now watch, that's a stark contrast. The the Bible writers here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's like, uh, uh, you know, we sort of know the story, so we don't uh, uh, go wow at that. But that's supposed to be a wow moment here. Because uh, they just endured several decades of a guy named Saul, who they chose themselves. And it turned out to be the wrong choice, and he led them down paths that they shouldn't have been led down. And here now, the Bible says, hey, listen, (laughs) I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. In other words, God's saying right here, this is the one I'm choosing. So in the study of David and uh, his life, the first thing or the second thing you want to know is that... David was God's choice. Saul was the man or men's choice, the world's choice. And that's a big thing. And it's, it's wonderful too. It reminds me, doesn't it? Just what we spoke about and thought about on Sunday in Genesis chapter two, that God provided himself a sacrifice. And now it says, God provided myself a king among his sons. God is Listen to this, all sovereign and all knowing and all providing. He's providential and he's sovereign. 
And when God sets out to do something, isn't this fascinating? He chooses a person to get it done. Hmm. Why doesn't he just snap his fingers and say, oh, that people over there, I want them to know the gospel, so snap. Hmm. Something to ponder. But what he does is he looks to and fro and he searches our hearts and he recognizes something in our hearts. We're going to see it here in a minute. And he makes a providential and sovereign choice to have a king among his sons or provided myself a king among Jesse's sons. Now, Bethlehem was no big deal place just south of Jerusalem. And you're going to see later in the New Testament, it had a very prominent place in the life of Jesus, as we all know. But here he provides himself a king among the sons of Jesse. And Samuel says this, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. You know, now if you study the life of Saul, you recognize that he was very jealous and bitter and angry. And Samuel, the number one prophet, judge, priest, the spiritual man of Israel, uh, he recognized and was threatened by the king, and God never intended it to be that way. And you see this tension right here. And there's another lesson. The men of the world who are picked by the world, they rule in that way. They rule by fear and terror and going to fire you and all that sort of thing. And the man, men of God don't rule that way. They rule in servanthood and love. And they want uh, their uh, people to be propped up and to be empowered to do the things that God has called them for or called them to. But the Lord said this, look, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Now, the Lord didn't tell Samuel to lie because he actually does go and sacrifice. And uh, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Fascinating. You weren't, he wasn't just being anointed for Israel. He was in being anointed on behalf of God. You see that? And uh, so I think that's powerful. God calls people as he looks to and fro the face of the earth. He looks into the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, and he calls them to something. And we're not just serving the people when we go and do the ministry that God's called us to. We're actually serving the Lord himself. Whoa, that puts a different spin on it. If you show up here Saturday, you're in charge of the Saturday chairs, and you're all set, and you got the three buddies that come with you, or your friends who come, or maybe you clean here, and you clean in a four-person group, and you know you show up here, you're real tired, you were doing things Friday night, and you come, and you're the only person. You're going to instantly know if you're serving the Lord or you're serving man. You're going to instantly know. You know how you're going to know? If you're irritated with the people and you're, you know, gosh, I mean, come on. I gave up my time this morning. Why don't you give up your time? Or do you jump in there and just serve the Lord joyfully, not worrying about what the others are doing? And uh, that's a big thing. And I'll show you what you shall do. And you're going to anoint for me the one I named to you. When God shows you to do something, what does it matter 
If other people fall away, he's shown you or he's shown me. Amen? Amen. And so the other part about this is anointing. What, what is anointing? Well, if you turn on uh, Christian TV, you're going to hear anointing. And it's thrown around like it's a word that we're supposed to know. And half the time, we don't know what it means. So let's just look at it a little bit. There's a number of different uh, references to anointing in the Bible. And here, God asked Samuel to anoint David. Well, with kings and priests and prophets... They were anointed with oil to symbolize something more that was going on, a a spiritual thing that was going on. And that would be God's presence was with him and his favor to move ahead in that office or ministry was upon them. And of course, uh, it's representative of the Holy Spirit oil is. And we know that the Holy Spirit came upon uh, David's life. We'll see that here in a minute. Uh, to do this thing, be the king that God had called them to. So look down in verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Now, see, just a little bit of a timeout. I'm always taking timeouts, but I'm going to go just on a little rabbit trail. First Samuel is the ultimate book of being cumulative, in a sense. It builds upon a whole bunch of different things. If you don't know what's at the beginning, some of this stuff in the middle is going to not make sense. Why Why in the world would the elders of the town of Bethlehem tremble at the coming of Samuel? Well, turn back to verse 32 of chapter 15. I'll leave you with this happy thought. No, I won't leave you, but this will be a happy thought. Here it is. Then Samuel said, hey, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among you. And here you go, this meek and mild little prophet, Samuel, hacked. It actually used the word hacked. Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Hmm, you think that word got out? Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house, and Samuel went uh, no more to see Saul until the day of his death. There, nevertheless, Saul, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So when you get over here, remember, this is you build, uh, you build what's at the beginning to know what's happening in David's life. Samuel goes over to the Bethlehem, and the Bethlehemites are like, uh... Are we safe here? This dude just hacked somebody in pieces. And he's supposed to be the spiritual guy of the land of Israel. Now, that leads me to this, and I want you to know it. If you know this, this sort of helps you all throughout the Old Testament. If you learn who the enemies of God were, it really unlocks and helps you to study the Old Testament. And one of the great or terrible enemies of God were the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, what did the Amalekites do other than being a terribly um, uh, perverse and evil and, um, well, perverse and evil culture and society? What did they do that drew God's ire? Well, here's what they did. Uh, They... uh, when the, the Israelites were coming up out of Egypt, the Amalekites 
waited for the old people and the sick people or the people who were vulnerable and helpless at the back, and they killed them and picked them off as enemies of God. And God didn't forget about it. In fact, uh, the Amalekites show up uh, right um, at the end of the book of First Samuel, and one of the Amalekites has a hand in, listen to what I'm saying, Bible college people, that's an inside joke, has a hand in the death of Saul, has a part in the death of Saul, Amalekites, okay? And um, uh, Saul, before this time, had spared King Agag. Saul did, not Samuel. Everybody following with me? I promise you we're going to get to the meat of this, but it's cumulative. And Saul, not Samuel, Samuel, through God's prophecy, told Saul to go and wipe out, prior to the time of chapter 16, to wipe out the Amalekites. And there's this famous story. He gets there, Saul does, and he wipes out most of them. But then he looks at the livestock, and he's like, wow, that's pretty cool livestock. Let's take some of that. And he takes some of the livestock and some of the plunder and doesn't wipe them all out, apparently, because an Amalekite has a hand in the death of Saul. And the point being here is that was the final straw that broke the camel's back for Saul to be rejected as king. That's in chapter 15, before this chapter. Everybody with me. And I want you to know that the Amalekites are prominent. And so at the end here, God asks Samuel to kill King Agag, and he hacks him in pieces. So when he goes over to Bethlehem, Bethlehemites are like, whoa, wait a second, is this safe? This guy, this Samuel, just wiped these people out. But he does. Do you come peaceably? And verse 5, he says, yeah, yeah, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them uh, to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he uh, uh, looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And I want you to recognize something here. <clears throat> the spiritual guy, Samuel, gets it wrong. He looks out, and Eliab, there must have been something great and wonderful about Eliab, because when, when he walks in, Samuel's like, that's the guy. What was Eliab like? Did he have all the right clothes on? Did he walk in a certain way? Was he buff like, you know, Xander or something like that? Did he say all the cool things? Did he have the wealthy stuff? Did he have, you know, the best horse or donkey or whatever? Did he have the best canteen? And when he walked in and Samuel's like, man, that guy's got it together. We're picking him. That's no doubt who God's going to pick. Well, thank goodness he didn't because Eliab winds up to be a whiner and a crier and a, a complainer and a murmurer and not very kind to his brother. So here he comes in and he's looked at Eliab. Notice this is on purpose, folks. The Bible says he looked. He didn't take time to get to know his inside. He looked. It's not what looks good. That's always the best thing. And so he does, and surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord says to Samuel immediately, listen to this. Don't look at his appearance. Now, the Lord wouldn't say it like I'm saying it. 
I'm an admitted smart aleck, but the Lord says, hey, don't look at his appearance or his physical stature because I've refused this one. For the Lord doesn't see as man sees, but the man, or, but he looks at the, or the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, man. The Lord looks at the heart. And that's the first thing that we want to know in the story of David. You know, if you have been rejected or you've been overlooked your whole life or, you know, you just seemingly don't fit in or maybe you're so not thought of in the family that they don't even consider you for stuff. Well, if that's the case, bingo. The Lord says, you're valuable to me. That's the basis of a start. Let me show you this uh, quote here uh, by Alan Redpath. You may not be intellectual or well thought of in your family circle, You may be despised by others for your faith in Christ. Perhaps you had only a little share in the love of your parents as David did. But remember that those who rejected of men often become beloved of the Lord. The first thing we learn here is that God sees in a different way. That's a great lesson for us, maybe us, who don't feel worthy But it's also a great lesson for the leaders of church not just to pick people because they look the right way or sound the right way or live on the certain side of the tracks or whatever you want to say. Amen? Look at some of the things that the Lord is looking for in people who he wants to use. Okay. Close your eyes, raise your hand if you want to be used by the Lord. Close your eyes, don't look around. Almost everybody in here has said, okay, I want to be used by the Lord. Okay, well, then let's examine what God is aiming at for people who want to be used by the Lord. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, and let's look in 26. For you see your calling, brothers and sisters, that not many wise, remember, you said you wanted to be used by the Lord, not many wise, not (laughs) according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to, be, or to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So no flesh should glory in his presence. Amen. Let him who glories glory in the Lord, it says. And so here we get a little glimpse here that, oh, okay, wait a minute. We, the, the, the uh, people's king was chosen by sight, tall, dark, handsome. 
beautiful, handsome guy that all the girls swooned at. And, but there was something in his character that was really holding him back. Here the Lord corrects it and says, no, that's not how I pick. I pick because what's going on the inside, in the heart. So Jesse then calls Abinadab and makes him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, well, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Seven sons go before him, the number of perfection. It's like Samuel, or Jesse's like, well, it's got to be one of these guys, which tells us a little bit about parenting Just because one doesn't do something that the other one does or can't do something that the other one can, when you're parenting and you're loving in a family, everybody's the same and you love them the same and you don't make distinctions. And just because one was great in school and one struggled in school doesn't make them lesser or better or whatever. And be careful about signaling some of the children out. But nevertheless, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen these. And Samuel said, well, are all the guys here? Are all the boys here? All the young men here? (laughs) And he goes, well, there remains uh, yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. He was so, I don't know. He wasn't even a thought to be one who would be uh, sought uh, by Samuel. And he wasn't thought of by his dad. Now think about that. Maybe there's somebody in here that's struggling or has struggled with their dad or their mom or whatever. Well, I want you to know something that the Lord sees you and knows you and has a great purpose for your life. Here, this one doesn't even, the dad doesn't even call uh, David by name. He just says you're at the youngest, and he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel says to Jesse there, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Can you believe that? So he sent and brought him in. They must have been a runner right there, right? Dad said, son, run. We, we can't sit down till you get back. Now, he was ruddy. What does that mean? It means fair. Some people believe it means redheaded, but some people believe it just means fair-skinned. And one of the things it could mean is that he had, you know, a reddish glow to him because he was always out in the fields and he was tending to the sheep. He was fair with bright eyes. And he was good-looking, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Wow. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, that must have been really shocking. I mean, how shocking, folks, thinking back on what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. How shocking must it have been? You see, Samuel was very famous. The people in the land of Canaan, the people of Israel, everybody knew who Samuel was. He was the spiritual guide and uh, uh, leader. He was the spiritual leader of the nation. And he was very famous. So if he came to your house, that was a huge, huge deal. But they didn't quite exactly know why he was there. He just says, hey, you know, uh, 
you know, come on out and parade your, your, your sons out here and uh, um, see, see what we can. And as they move them through there, all of a sudden he says, well, that's the one. I mean, the brothers must have been, are you talking about him? Him? What about old guy or the oldest one or what about? And, but immediately Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints him right there. In the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, this is important for you to know. You don't know it yet because we haven't got there yet. David is anointed three times. This is the first time. The first time he's anointed by Samuel in the midst of his brothers, his family only see it. The second time he's anointed is after Saul has been chasing him and doing all these things, and finally he's out of his life. Uh, uh, he is anointed by the people of Judah, just southern Israel. And that happens in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 1, chapters 2, right in there. And then in chapter 5, David is anointed by the entire uh, people of Israel. He's anointed three times. You get that? And that anointing isn't going to come for some 20 or 25 years. I'm just going to let that sit there for a minute. So he's been anointed. Everybody knows, well, they all sort of know now when they get to the family, oil running down this little kid's head, this teenager, this little runt kid that they send out in the field because nobody wants to do it. And dad makes me, or makes him. And the brothers participate. And he comes in and Samus says, that's the one. An afterthought, never even was thought of by his own family. God had an amazing purpose for him. And so he anoints him. And then it's going to take 20 to 25 years before David takes the full throne. You get it? And that's often the way it is with the Lord. Have you ever found uh, that the Lord has, through his word, uh, by his spirit, spoken something to you, and it's burning a hole in your chest? I want you to start this Bible study, or I want you to go and minister at this homeless shelter, or I want you to begin this church, or what, whatever. I want to bring, you begin this fellowship. And then you say, and I say, you know, okay, tomorrow? I mean, is that going to happen tomorrow? And I'm ready for it. Come on, Lord, you promised it to me. Uh, but oftentimes, the Lord takes several years or several uh, units of time, whatever those are, months, years, whatever, in order for him to do something after he's called you. <laughs> in fact, what is he going to do in David's life. Well, let me, let me tell you something. Xander and Olivia finally got me to read this book. It quite possibly is the best book I've ever read that's not the Bible. I say that about everything, but you read this once. Ask Kelly Clark. This is unbelievable. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you for 15 bucks. No, I'm kidding. It's called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. And one of the things Gene Edwards says in his book, chapters are only two or three pages. 
but it is the most powerful two or three pages you ever read. Anyway, one of the things Gene Edwards says in his book, and he gets at, is, okay, uh, David has been appointed king. He's now enrolled in king's school or the school for the kings. And that course curriculum is brokenness. 20 years of God breaking David before he would take the real throne. A brokenness. The Bible says in all these different places, Jesus said it, that if you really want to follow after me, you'll take up your cross daily. You'll die to yourself daily, and you'll follow me. If you really want to have life, you'll lose your life. Let me show you something Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. I believe the ladies did this at their women's study, but maybe that was other women's retreat, but it might have been two years ago. I can't remember. But Paul here is basically describing what happens for people who are ministering. Now, let me ask you something. Who in here thinks all of us should be ministers? Well, I do. <laughs> because the Bible calls you to serve and to love and to serve other people. You don't just have to be up here to be the minister, to minister to people. Bible is calling you maybe to minister to your family, to your kids, to your wife, to your friends. Maybe he's, you're ministering on the job. Maybe you're ministering in your extracurricular activities. Maybe you're ministering at soccer while the kids are playing or whatever. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes down something that is a must for all ministers, of which I think anyone in here who's born again is one. Ready? It says, but we have, verse 7, this treasure in earthen vessels. I think that was their theme. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God, listen, God wants his glory and goodness to pour forth out of your life. Amen? So, but that's not what I really want you to see here yet. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We should write a, a, a song about that. But anyway, always care. This is it. This is what I want you to see. For those who are in Christ, and all of us, you know, all of us are in Christ who are ministering, and we all should be. Listen, we should carry always in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. There is always in the Christian a dying of the Lord Jesus in themselves. You're always dying as he died, saying the things like this, oh Lord, I, I don't know if I really want to do this, but not my will, yours be done. Lord, I know you've called me to minister to that person. I got to tell you, Lord, that person bugs me. They're hard to deal with, but Lord, not my will, thy will be done. Lord, I want to, Lay down my life. You're always caring about, and I'm not even expressing it one little bit of what we're to do, but, but that we're to 
carry in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. This isn't dead religion here, folks. This is the living Lord moving in and through you as you, look, die to yourself, or as I die to myself. The Lord Jesus moves in and through you to bless a confused, dead, evil world. You're always, not just sometimes, Wednesdays and Sundays, the dying that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live, here it comes, are always delivered, always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death is working in us, but life in you. Do you know what Paul's saying right there? I'm laying down my life for the people I'm ministering to. Like not just being inconvenienced. I'm laying it all down for the people I'm ministering to. And that's what we learn back here in the book of Samuel. Is that the Lord wants us to be broken people. But I have to tell you, there's times when I don't hit the mark with that, is anybody else in that category? And the Lord is taking us through things and working in things as he's making us more like Jesus as we're carrying the death and manifesting the life of Christ. He's making us more like Jesus. So even though he might call us, oh, I almost forgot my point. Even though he might call us in year one, you don't always have to be in a haste to do it the next day. Because the Lord is building something in and through you for the time that you'll be ready to move in when he says, yes, it's time to move in. Isn't that powerful? And so what should you be doing in the meantime? Well, that's easy. You see it right here. Those who minister, those who are Davids or Davidas, see how I did that? David, male or female, whatever. Do you, do you see this? Let's look at this. What should we be doing with in the meantime? Here it comes. Be with the sheep. You got people who want to, you know, do this highfalutin thing and maybe get on Instagram and, you know, wear the high tops that are $7,000 and watches and do all that sort of thing and have all these likes. And you're like, are you even with the sheep ever? Where are you? You might be doing some Christian stuff, but that ain't pastoring. Because pastors are with the sheep, the shepherds. Jesus is the real shepherd. We're just under shepherds. They're with the sheep. And I got news for you, folks. Sheep are sometimes really messy. They don't do what you ask. They don't go where they should. They don't really even smell that great. (laughs) And they make the shepherds smell. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but that's where David was. Even after all of this, it even tells us he went back, after he knew about the promise, he went back to be with the sheep. I mean, how humble, how resourceful, how faithful little David was, how overlooked 
Because the world doesn't honor those sorts of things. They honor flash and glitz and glamour and quick satisfaction and all that sort of thing. But here's this young man who's out there tending to his sheep. And what happens when he's, or the sheep are laying or grazing? What is he doing? Well, we know because we have his writings. He was writing songs of praise. He was praising the Lord. He was talking to his Lord. He was out there without a phone. He didn't even have an iPhone. And he was out there and he was doing these sorts of things. He was praying and praising and talking to his Lord. Listen, he was learning to live without the aid of anything but the Lord. And some people would call it boredom. Today, we'd certainly call it boredom. David was learning to live in that environment where all he had was the Lord and the sheep. Ooh. You talk about dying. Well, Lord, what about me? I want to watch the football game, or I want to be in the hotel, or I need a good meal. See, that's what the older guys were saying, the older brothers. David was like, okay, Dad, I'll do it, and I'll be out there. And he didn't waste it. You know this. As he's out there, he's writing the Psalms. He's praising the Lord. He's learning to live in perfect or as perfect as a person can outside of Jesus in reliance upon the Father and while all the while ministering to the sheep. That's what he's doing. But he learns. He just doesn't stay there. He learns there are things on the horizon. What are some of the things on the horizon? Well, they're um, uh, predators. Predators come, and they try to steal from his family. And maybe even, uh, as we know, in Bethlehem, sometimes uh, one shepherd from one family would sometimes watch other family shepherds, but that's another story. But the point was, predators were dangerous. It destroyed your flock, and it, you came to love these sheep, and it destroyed your wealth and all that sort of thing. So what did David learn? Well, when David goes and convinces Saul to let him fight Goliath. Folks, don't forget this. Verse 34 of the next chapter, David says to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. Here's another thing I want you to see David had to learn. He's just a teenager now. He had to learn how to respond to fear. You imagine the first night out in old Bethlehem? You have, you know, maybe dad sort of told you how to keep the, them in a corral or, you know, corralled or whatever. And all of a sudden you hear something like a coyote noise or a bear noise. And you're like, what have I signed up for? And I bet there were some sleepless nights at the beginning or maybe even throughout the whole thing. And, uh, uh, you know, this, right? I mean, all throughout the old Testament, God asks us to take heart, uh, have courage, don't fear. Uh, Jesus tells us not to worry, right? 
Fear is the um, opposite or the, the, the uh, enemy of faith. Amen? So David had to learn about that. And apparently, he got to the place where he had overcome that fear, and he had begun to do things in practical application to help the sheep, and he had no idea that one day he's going to fight a nine-foot-tall guy who'd never been beat, like the Mike Tyson of the ancient world. And, you know, I mean, we're going to get to it, but Saul says, well, here, take the armor. Saul likes to hide. David tries to put it on, and he says, well, that ain't me. Just give me five stones, and I'll take my sling, and we'll take care of it, and he does. How does a boy get from that in the fields by himself, scared, overlooked, not counted as anything, lonely, nobody to talk to, to a place where he could slay lions and bears and walk out on a battlefield and say, why are you guys so upset? The Lord is going to take care of this for us. How does a man get like that or a woman get like that? Here's how I think. They spend ample amounts of time with just her or him and the Lord. They put down their phones, they spend time with the Lord, and they let the Lord love on them and talk to them and speak to them, and they dialogue back with the Lord. And there's this give and take in their life. And here's what I just want you to know. That's what David was like. Just read his Psalms. You know what Charles Spurgeon used to say about the Psalms or does say about the Psalms in his writing? The most mature Christians always read the Psalms because that's the way in which you interact with our Lord. Well, here, as we uh, move out for this week or move on from this, for this week, Samuel took the horn, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Here, the contrast. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player on the harp. Don't you wish we had a harper here at our church? Oh, we do, and praise the Lord for her. And we heard it on Christmas Eve. And I got to tell you, I've never really heard it up close. And this is so true. When you're distressed, that's one thing that you would call for. That your master now command your servants to seek out a man who is a skillful player, and it shall be that he'll play it with his hand when the Spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Now, I want you to see there's a contrast here. The spirit of the Lord comes upon David. The spirit of the Lord goes or uh, departs from Saul. This is a big turning point in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, of course. 
It's like uh, ushering in and ushering out. And then, uh, therefore, it says here in uh, 19, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And uh, Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in his sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Man, David didn't waste that time in the uh, wilderness. God always, before he sends out a person, prepares them for what they're going to do. He did it with Moses. We've talked about it here with David. He gets the anointing, but he, it's uh, two or, uh, 20 years or so before he has it. Now, one, last thing I want to uh, uh, talk about before we close, and I've got a million things to talk about, but this one is, what is God looking for? as a man or a woman who's after his own heart. First of all, what does it mean that David was a man after God's own heart? That's in chapter 3. Uh, uh, or, anyway, it's previously, and it's also in Acts 13, that David is called a man after God's own heart. But what is a man after God's own heart? What does it mean to be after God's own heart? I think it means this. You have a sensitivity to the things that matter to God. You have a real sensitivity to the things that matter to God. And when we get all busy and phony, I'm saying P-H-O-N-E-Y, not, I'm talking this phony, not the other phony. When we get phony and Netflixy and Spotify-ish, and all the different things, the TV shows, and the football games, and the music, and all the... Listen, none of it's bad in of itself, but what does it take away from? It takes away from our sensitivities to the things that matter to God. It dulls our senses. None of them are that bad. I mean, can be, but you get what I'm saying. But the Lord was looking for a person, and he's looking now. He does it now for people who have a sensitivity to the things of the Lord. The things that the Lord, listen, that the Lord cares about, you care about, or I care about. What does the Lord tell us? You know what he cares about? Vulnerable people, lost people, hurting people, people who don't know the gospel. Those things are all in the minds of the Lord, and he's constantly pursuing people. Does that matter to you or to me? Well, if it does, you're, you have a heart after God's own heart. And some of the things that God will do with you, like he'll do with David, is he'll put you around sheep. And sheep, as we said, aren't always the most pleasant things. And he'll put you in solitude or maybe even boredom so that he can break you of the things that are detracting from you and him having this communion. That's what he wants to do with people after their, uh, his own heart. You get it? 
And then he'll start as he breaks you of these things. And as you're being a broken person who the dying of the Lord is living in so that the life can come out, as, he, as he's working in, in that way, he'll start to look, build grand and glorious victories into your life, like David, who could slay a lion or a bear. I doubt he thought when he started tending the sheep that someday he'd be able to kill those lions or kill those bears. Grab them right by the scruff right here. And that's what the Lord wants to do in our lives. By the power of the Holy Spirit, as we retreat and die to self, and he lives in and through us. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we just come and we lift up this time. It went fast, Lord. At least for me it did. (laughs) And we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, that we would be people who would rely upon your spirit, who would be people who learn to live with you, undistracted time to receive from you and to learn from you and to love you and to have you love us, that you would do something mighty in our hearts so that we would be people who around the sheep would protect them and love them and be able to fend off the predators. And Lord, uh, we pray too, Lord, that you'd make us instruments of healing. Maybe we can't play the harp, but what we can do is encourage and love and share and make people feel seen and heard just like two of the names of, of you, Lord. You see people and you hear them. So I thank you, Lord. We bless you. We say, Lord, here's our lives. Do what you will. In Jesus' name, amen.